You're listening to the Substandard Model. On today's episode, scientists have started putting chili powder in solar panels. And how birds shed their genes to stay light. Is there really a ninth planet in the solar system? I'm going to talk about genes. This is a biology fact. This is my actually my only biology fact of the day. Yeah, we've we've we've, um, we've clamped down on biology. We've we've clamped down a little bit, but this is a really good biology fact. It's a really nice one. It really make, makes you change your perspective a little bit, and it's great. It's one of those facts that's that's great because I'll say it, and it will blow your mind, and then I'll slowly spend the rest of the time unpicking it why it's not true, and the resolution is another kind of fact that's almost just as good. So it's wow. kind of a little, a little. So a little, initially, yeah. I should try and turn down my excitement. No, 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 no. Real reveal is that. not as good as. I want you to enjoy the lie for a bit, okay? okay. I want you to enjoy the lie. Um, what and is just, the lie, just, the lie is that birds. So we 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 started getting the ability to look at people's genomes uh, pretty recently, you know, and we looked at the genome of the people, we looked at the genome of the chickens, you know, rats frogs stuff like that you know the, the things that were in our garden and, and around us and we pretty quickly noticed that all the birds that we looked at they have much 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 smaller genomes than than other things much smaller, about half the size in general much smaller and now that doesn't mean people who know about genetics it doesn't mean they have less genes obviously but you know most most of your genes aren't actually genes they're just stuff in between your genes that's repeated or you've got short time repeats you've got you got the introns you've got all that that's actually not mostly not coding segments so birds that have less genes than us birds just have much smaller genomes much more compact much more kind of efficient if you will genomes that have less repeating sections in them so birds have much more smaller much more constrained genomes sounds weird distinctly distinctly smaller they also looked at bats now bats also have much much smaller genomes henry that's weird because birds and bats and I are think not really taxonomically related. Not whatsoever. Taxonomically, they're not related at all. Obviously, bats and mammals, um, birds are not. And I, I think you're you're barreling towards a conclusion which many scientists at the time also were barreling towards, which is that a smaller genome, much smaller genome, drastic reduction in genome size, is an adaptive trait characteristic of flight. Because yeah, I mean, I, I thought about it. If you reduce your genome size by by half, you're a lot lighter. No, really? No, I mean, yes. Henry, every cell in your body has a nucleus, pretty much, apart from your blood cells. They contain a huge density of matter. I mean, every cell in your body has a nucleus. That makes up a, a, a decent percentage point of your weight. It's a lot of phosphorus. Small, I mean, the, outside the nucleus, it's mostly just water. The nucleus is a, a highly dense, compacted region of space. You got all sorts of you got ribosomal RNA in there. You got all your chromosomes that have been compacted. They wind around proteins, so the histone proteins in there really quite quite heavy. And I mean, it seems stupid because an individual nucleus is so small, but you're made of nothing but cells, right? Yeah. Everything's a cell. So the nucleus, I mean, if you took a proportion of your weight that is made of nuclei, it would be pretty significant. Here's and another thing: birds, by reducing their genome size, reduces their weight a great deal. Yes. Well, because all your cells contain all of your genes, I don't know if it's a stupid question. Uh-huh. Why not, instead of just having half the size of genome, why not just include the genes that you need, like take it another step in terms of efficiency 
and just have each cell only include the genes that it needs. Well, all your cells, then that, that way that would stop mitosis from kind of working because your, your cells need to sort of exist through mitosis and mitosis sort of definitionally creates genetically identical copies of its, of its daughter cells. So you can't really have all your cells in your body having different genes in them because, well, then they wouldn't recognize each other and then they wouldn't really, and that, that wouldn't be able to happen because the way that we understand cells to replicate sort of involves, involves genetically identical daughters, daughter cells. The way that we, the way that we can hide some of our genes. And okay, so not, they've taken it as far as they can then. So they've taken they've all the genes so they can take it out with, whilst also maintaining enough, the identicalness between cells. That yeah, so allows... they, they, they haven't even taken out genes. They, they have the same regulatory sequences as us, right? They have a lot of, more in some cases. Like birds have more advanced vision than us. They have a lot of, a lot of genes around the bones because they have quite complicated bone structure, also to reduce weight. Their bones are hollow, as you, as you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, flight, flight is much, feathers are much more, are much lighter in structure than things like scales or membranes. And that, that's also to reduce weight. Their, their beaks are evolved potentially to reduce weight as well, as opposed what to about, bony jaws. Insects? Insects don't have so much of a problem because insects, well, A, they don't have a lot of the organs that we do. Their circulatory system is, is a lot more primitive and they're a lot smaller. They're a lot smaller. They're kind of just evolving from a different point of view and their genomes work in quite different ways as well. So insects that have don't encounter a lot of the same obstacles as birds. So they don't have the same flight muscles. They don't have bones to worry about. They just sort of came from a lighter, they started from a lighter place. So right. bones, birds started from a heavier place and they had to get lighter. Insects kind of just were light already, so they didn't have okay. to get lighter. So they didn't have to shrink their genome. So Sam, why is it not um, true that that's come from flight? Okay, well, okay, it, it is it is true that it's for flight, but it's not really true that it's for making them lighter. Okay, so cool. so um, that was the original theory that 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 came for a while. I mean, that's the obvious the obvious answer, and to an extent, it is true. It does make them lighter in a lot of respects. But then we had a little look, and it seems that dinosaurs, and non-avian dinosaurs even, um, they also had genome reduction that had already started. It had already become... Um, back when they were chunky before, monkeys. Back when they were chunky before they had started really flying. Yeah. I mean, T-Rex. So therefore, you know, why would... Good 14 tons or so. Yeah, T-Rex, T-Rex ain't, ain't flying far. And if and T-Rex still had a... It's flying a, fast a downwards, if it... A shrunky, a shrunky monkey genome. If T. Rex still had shrunky genomes, why would, you know, it can't be, it can't really be to do with flight, can it? No. But so people were getting a little. There was a few theories coming out. People were trying to try and defend the weight hypothesis because I think it's a pretty cool hypothesis. Now the view is much more nuanced. Okay, there's been a lot of papers on this, and I'm going to try and explain what the current view is on why birds have such drastically reduced genomes. And it's all to do with looking at the relationships within birds. If you look at the relationships in genome sizes within the clade of birds, you can see which kinds of birds have the most shrunk genomes. And therefore, the traits those birds have relative to other birds, they, that may explain why you've got the shrunking in the first place. Now, the birds right. that have the most reduced genome sizes, well, essentially, they're hummingbirds. And there are other birds that have extreme, well, extreme heart indexes. So that means that their heart is very large relative to their body size. Uh-huh. What else? Some of their core flight muscles are yeah. also very large relative to their body size. And, and a then really fast heart rate. Really yeah. fast heart rate, basically. Their, their metabolism is way up, right? And also birds that have a, a high wing loading. So wing loading is like the amount of weight that their wings need to carry. They're, they have a, a positive correlation with genome size. So you actually have smaller genomes that you have less wing loading. 
which is the a kind of uh, opposite, the opposite way of saying that, you know, it, the same statement is birds that have bigger wings, like an albatross that has evolved really efficient flight relative to body size, that the larger wings, they have, they, have, they have less wing loading, so they have smaller genomes. So it seems um, that it is correlated with flight, strongly correlated with flight in a lot of ways, but less weight and less, not so much body mass, but more the energy they're devoting to flight and the energy that they're, you know, relative to their body size, like a hummingbird, with a lot of energy to fly, something like a woodpecker or a flightless birds, for example, their genomes are larger. So it is in fact to do with metabolism. And it's actually quite a nice explanation. So a, a nucleus imposes a minimum size constraint on a cell. You know, a nucleus is a yeah. big area of a cell. If you want to shrink your cell, you shrink from the cytoplasm, you shrink and shrink and shrink. Once you get to the nucleus, you can't really shrink your cell more. Your nucleus is kind of as, as big as it's got to be. So that's yeah. a minimum size constraint. And birds want their cells to be as small as possible, A, because of weight, but B, because the smaller the cells, the more cells they can pack into an area, the more surface area they can get, the higher surface area their organs have, the greater the metabolic flux. That means the greater the ability they have to transfer um, substances, transfer nutrients, ATP, amino acids, oxygen, stuff like that, the greater the ability they have to transfer stuff between their cytoplasm and their blood. So they have the greater ability to really increase their metabolism if their cells are smaller because they have more surface area. Right. So, yeah? so you, you can get more, more bubbly surface area to suck in oxygen from the blood. Yes. So the smaller, so smaller the nucleus, smaller the cell, more bumpy the surface, you know, more cells in the tissue, more oxygen you can absorb, more, more energy you can make. And this is really important because metabolism is huge for birds. Birds need a massive metabolism. They, they, they have this thing called a, a met, the metabolic index is, is the ratio between the resting metabolic rate and the peak metabolic rate, essentially the ability that cells have to increase metabolic flux at, at will, given the activity you're doing. Humans, they can't really get like above seven very easily. You know, people in the Tour de France maybe get high to this, this ratio being around seven. And it's thought, it was thought that animals couldn't really exist with it, with it at this level. Hummingbirds can get it 13, 14 in cases nice. because they're so adapted to, to having the ability to really increase their metabolism. And this is, this is due to their ability to reduce their genome, which makes their cells smaller. It also allows them to essentially get more oxygen to rush into their flight muscles. So not just increase their metabolism, but they can get more power in their muscles on a short-term basis. It, it means that they generally can reduce the amount of water in their cells mm-hmm. um, because their cells can get smaller, which means that they can, they can basically also reduce their weight. So it's kind of a weight thing, weight comes into it. Uh-huh. But the biggest, the biggest, when looking at birds, the biggest thing that you can use to determine the, how small a bird's um, genome is going to be is if you look at how big the flight muscles are relative to the whole bird. So, and that so if in we itself had, uh, tells you it is a flight. land animal who had a really high metabolic ratio, mm-hmm. would that then lead to an evolutionary pressure which would encourage it to have a smaller genome? Definitely. If it was high enough, it was high enough for sure. I mean, bats, bats have not extremely that? high metabolism. I'm just thinking, is I there mean, an example of a land animal who's got a shrunken genome? Because that, that would prove the theory, basically. I would say it's unrelated to I mean, rodent, it's actually related to metabolism. Probably a better way to prove the theory is only to, just to look for correlations within birds, because once you get to looking between taxa, that's kind of frowned upon a little because there's so many confounding variables. Like if you're going to say, oh, 
also rodents have it because they have a high metabolism. You can then open yourself up to 30 contradicting papers saying, well, rodents also have this and rodents also have this, which could, which could lead to this. And there's another confounding evolutionary thing going there. You know, you you, you don't want to, biology is very, very cautious. You want to limit your phylogenetic scope. With test tube babies, can we (laughs) read our human genome, cut Uh out all the unnecessary repetitions using Mm -hmm. a wealth of knowledge you know, we do loads okay. of experiments. We work it out. We work what bits we need and what bits we don't need. And we cut all the non-essential bits, right? Grow a test mm-hmm. tube baby with all the non-essential bits. So all of its gene, so it basically grows like one of these birds. Uh, does, yeah. this, does this child see any significant gains in terms of their like physical ability in life? So first of all, we, well, we wouldn't be able to do that because A, we don't first of all we don't really know which bits are necessary and which bits aren't necessary because surely there's uh, some unnecessary bits well i mean even the unnecessary bits can be good part of the thing with with the unnecessary bits in our in our dna is it allows for robustness it allows for evolutionary robustness this is one of the reasons why birds can speciate so quickly and they tend to just explode into so many species even in a really short period of time Whereas mammals don't do that. Basically, in 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 biology, sometimes degeneracy and sometimes some things that aren't completely necessary can act as backups and are really kind of useful. If one if one gene network gets you know fucked up by a mutation or whatever, you can still continue to live based on your repeats in a, in a crude way, and that's right. why genome duplication. So when your whole genome gets duplicated, which happens in plants a lot of the time, you can have one copy of your gene that's evolving slowly right turning into something new and exciting but in order not to kill you you have to have a second copy that was doing the original function and that allows you to explore you know you can you can walk through paths of of evolution mutation by mutation and each step is a viable organism and Mm -hmm. and you can eventually get to some remarkable conclusion where you evolve you evolve eyes or you evolve something that that couldn't be reduced in its complexity you know you can you can go huge leaps where it seems impossible that you could get there by small steps just because you were allowed to explore these, these sort of unnecessary routes. And that comes from your, from your, you know, degeneracy from having repeats. So a person without repeats would be a less healthy person. Even, even if those repeats were seen as unnecessary, uh-huh. they are kind of necessary. And, and also uh-huh. the way that we can like tell the way that we do forensics is we look at how many repeats someone has in their DNA. Cause that's, that's specific to the individual. Yeah. So like that, that's the reason that you're different from, from someone else, even though you have the same fundamental human genes, is because the number of short tandem repeats, the number of SRIs and other varies. kind of repeats, that, that varies. And that, that's why you get a scarf with Henry's DNA, for example. Yeah. And I, I might ask, well, why isn't that just Sam's DNA? Because we're both humans. The, the scarf represents your repeats. Nice. Um, Let's say we did that... it. What, what would the result be? We'd have a less healthy person who has... Uh, as of the right now, uh, undescribed health conditions by you know medicine, right? I mean, there would be a, a massive, a massive host of problems because if your cell is noticeably smaller, then that would just kind of, I guess that would just screw over your whole development. Yeah, but so re- repeats aren't uh, I, even though they're even out. though they're called junk DNA and they're called introns, you know, non-essential, non-coding bits of DNA. The, the view is getting more and more towards these being useful techniques in biology and that that's why they vary from clay to clay the third question is why the hell have we kept it for so long if it's junk it's useful it's how it's not junk. yeah exactly it it must have a use it's if it doesn't code for proteins it can have a use in our trajectory in all cases all of ever 
if you ever think evolution's made a slight mistake or has gone wrong, you're wrong. Like you're 100% <laughs> wholly incorrect, true, not a fact. You're just false. There's always a reason why something is the way it is in biology because it's done, it's, 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 it's had so many opportunities to be another way. That's not a bad way of saying it. That is not a bad way of saying it. I mean, you can, you can have, you know, suboptimal designs. Gynogenesis is crap. A squid is a bad swimmer, but for something that used to be a snail, it's pretty great. Yeah. That's the old saying. I like that. That's funny. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fun way of saying it. Have I told you about Planet Nine? Have I done that yet? Or have I just like told you I like it? Mm. So, enough of that mumbo-jumbo. Enough of that um, absolute, absolute non-science. We are here to talk about real, definitive proof of a definitive thing that definitely exists and no one disagrees with. And this is that. There, well, let's just say my very educated mother might just have served us nine bickles instead of nine pickles. Nine bickles instead of nine pickles. Now, Henry, are you familiar with uh, Neptune? Not personally. Okay. Well, Neptune, Neptune's Roman god of the sea, um, and um, it was predicted in 18, 1821 and properly found in, like, sort of 1850-ish, 1846. Right. And then around then, people started to get pretty sceptical about its situ- about the situation with Neptune because some astronomers weren't entirely satisfied with the calculations they had made. For example, Percival Lowell, and he, he extended some extensive research into, into Neptune, did some extensive calculations about its orbit and what the mass was predicted to be and how it was changing. And he basically said, yeah. Neptune can't be it. Right, ne- Neptune. Neptune can't be the end because its calculations devi- is deviating from the path that I'm predicting based on its mass. There has to be some other body that is controlling the movement of Neptune. And now, you- this is well you- at, at this at that the point at this point. Right, he he wasn't actually regarded as so much of an idiot because Neptune itself had been discovered by looking for anomalies in the orbit of Uranus. Neptune was the first planet to be predicted before it was discovered. So Percival Lowell looking at Neptune and saying, why well, predict another one? People were taking him seriously because this had precedent, right? Some people even took him very seriously. For example, Clyde Tombeau, he read Lowell's book and was inspired. He wanted to search for this new planet, which, which Lowell had called Planet X. So Clyde Tombeau was, was in the 30s in his garden in, in America, you know, in, in, in the swinging swing in 30s, um, pointing a scope at the sky, and he found found a little a little geezer known as Pluto, right? And and he got super excited. He got super excited because, well, partly it was because Lowell had already kind of kind of primed everyone to be expecting another planet. So when Tombo found this little rock, he kind of I think he got a bit overexcited and he said, Oh my god, it's planet X. We found this super cool planet which is affecting the orbit of Neptune. It must be like what seven Earth masses or something. It must be massive. We think this is a huge, massive planet, and it's going to blow our mind. And then, as they look closer and closer, it shrunk from the predicted mass of seven times Earth to hundreds of times smaller than Earth. Nice. And and it was slowly realized that maybe maybe Pluto wasn't quite the planet X that we we're looking for. I mean, it's one of the reasons that we found like you know. Lots of planets, lots of little big, big 
things in asteroid belts or whatever, and we didn't get excited about them, and we didn't call them planets. When we found Pluto, which is not much bigger than them, we, we decided to call it a planet. And that's why Pluto had to get downgraded, because we jumped the gun a bit on that one. And that's Lowell's fault. And then in 1990, or 1989, Voyager 2 finally arrived at Neptune, checked, found its mass to be you know a little different than what we thought, and the calculations were corrected. And it turned out that the inconsistencies that had bothered Lowell in the first place weren't even there. So we didn't even need to, pr- to worry about Planet X. Neptune is perfectly consistent in its orbit with what we'd expect. But there was still that, that little itch, you know, that niggling feeling up the spine of the astronomers in the community. Hey, what if, what if there was, ah, oh, it'd, be, it'd be so great, wouldn't it, if there was a Planet X? You know, it just feels that like there should be nine planets, eight planets. No, that's not enough. I want nine. We had to get rid of Pluto, man. I, I, want, I want it back. You know, people, people wanted Planet X to be real. Uh-huh. Although at the time there was just there was no reason to look for it. Well, that was until we we were looking around the Kuiper Belt, and we found Sedna, right? And we found a lot of a lot of things in the Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt is, is is the second belt in our solar system. You know, it's out from out from Neptune. The asteroid belt is the first one. That's just before Jupiter, and then after that you got the Kuiper Belt, which is way further out. A lot of yeah. stuff in the Kuiper Belt. Um, we found Sedna. Sedna is a dwarf planet, so it's like Pluto way out there it's and at the time it was it was probably the longest period object that we'd ever found in the solar system in the sense that it takes eleven thousand years to orbit the sun its year is one eleven thousand earth years so it, it's you know it's a slow moving thing it really far away that it's barely in the solar system and we were like okay sedna and then we were looking, looking in the same place. We found other things that were like Sedna, 11,000-year orbits and stuff like that. We called them Sednoid objects, you know, these, these really long-period um, objects, uh, these extreme trans-Neptunian objects, or ETNOs is what they were called. So extreme trans-Neptunian objects have typically long orbits. They're small, they're dwarf planet-sized, and they're in the Kuiper belt, right? That's, that's characteristic. And we found a lot of things like this. And we found one called VP113. And, we, and that looks a lot like Sedna, actually. In fact, it looks so much like Sedna that it was following a suspiciously similar orbit to Sedna in a slightly weird way. Like, it was orbiting the sun in a really long period orbit that was kind of eccentric that's very, very similar to Sedna. So, oh, maybe, it's, maybe it used to be part of Sedna and it broke off or something. And not thinking too much about it. And then we looked at more ETNOs and we found more and more that looked like Sedna that were Sednoid. We found 14 Sednoid ETNOs. It's a bit, bit funny. And, and when you're looking at an orbit of a really long period object like this, they're not close to each other. They're not close to anything. Yeah, there, shouldn't really be many factors. there shouldn't be many things influencing their orbits. You know, if we're assuming that we're kind of sampling them randomly as we're finding them from different telescopes at different times of year, different places, we'd kind of expect them to be kind of distributed randomly in the eccentricity or the angle of their orbits because they're just in this huge cloud, right? Well, they, they all kind of not only... Are they in a similar similar position? So are they also are they all orbiting in a similar a similar eccentricity? But the angle from the ecliptic that is formed by them is all similarly deviated. So the ecliptic is the plane that everything orbits in, right? Let's say the 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 solar system is a table, and the sun is in the middle of the table, and all the planets are rolling around the sun on the same table, right? The ecliptic, and that's just to do with the formation of the sun, the accretion disk which was formed, and that turns yeah, yeah. the planets, blah, blah, blah. You've got the same, it's all kind of aligned. There are some planets that break that, so I think Uranus is 90 degrees from the ecliptic, and it's really weird. But most things in the solar system orbit on the ecliptic. Uranus and if is you deviate, Uranus is 
frigging that's great. That's not a joke. It was, it, it, I swear it's rotating <laughs> in the opposite direction as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's rotating in the opposite direction. It, it, it is really far from the ecliptic. In in Uranus, you, you have like, you know, permanent sunsets and the sun comes directly from the... So if you're looking at the horizon, the that's sun basically true. circles in the sky and at some point, the sun will be directly in the sky during summer and the entire sky moves around the sun because it's basically just facing the sun. It rolls around on its side. Yeah. As to spinning. Yeah. It says it's it, really, it is really like cool. a rolling ball. So it's, it's rolling axis yeah. points towards the sun. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pole points towards the sun. Basically that's weird. Like you is considered weird for deviating from the ecliptic. Most things default to the ecliptic. I'd appreciate if, if Uranus would kept its, kept itself in control in the future. Damn. Deviating from the ecliptic. Yeah, man. But basically, you know, it's not that weird to say deviating from the ecliptic, but when you have 14 ETNOs yeah. that are all deviated by the same angle, that's getting weird. And that's they're all so eccentric. And, and when they're eccentric, that eccentric means that, like, their orbit isn't directly around the sun. So it's not, imagine a big oval. The sun isn't in the middle of the oval. The sun is at one end of the oval. It goes so close to the sun and then really far from the sun. But yeah, all it's, of how, these... it's how an elliptical orbit works because you need the focal point to be. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With a lot of these ETNOs, these sedenoid ETNOs, you get the close point of the sun where it, where it gets to the sun, the sort of the, the closest point to the orbit. That is all kind of pinched around the same place. All these planets swing around the sun in the same place, and then their tails trail off and they come back and all swing around the sun in the same place, and they're all deviated in the same way. Now, this, as we found more of these, it's got weirder and weirder, and. It was estimated that there is a 0.007% chance that this arrangement of orbits is formed from pure coincidence. So either there's bias in our collection methods, and if there is, we don't know what it is. We can't, yeah. we can't figure out because there has never been in the past. Or there's something that's allowing these objects to become, to, to become sedenoid. One more thing as uh, compelling evidence for what might be happening which might give you clues to the, what the theory actually is here. There are two ETNOs we found recently in 2013, um, RF-98 and VN-112. Now, these two, two more sedenoid ETNOs, and they have really, really similar spectra, really similar orbital dynamics, very similar, in fact. It looks like they once shared an orbit, so they were once in a binary system, like uh, Pluto and Phobos or something, and something had to disrupt this binary system. There's nothing out there. I mean... It's a, it's kind of a blank slate. I mean, these things are really far away. For starting to disrupt a binary system between two of these ETNOs, something a planet size could have done that. I mean, you're getting a lot of these disrupted binary systems, which, which implies it basically in the same way that we saw discrepancies with our calculations and we saw things that were too, too good to be true when looking for Neptune. We're seeing similar things here. We're seeing implications that there is some gravitational interaction out there. So what's the suggestion? Is it that there's this this used to be a planet is broken up into these fourteen pieces? No, no, or no. Or no, is no, it no, that no. there's another planet that has broken up these pieces? So it's not so much like these these sedimentarians used to be part of a planet and broke up. People are hypothesizing that there is still a planet very very far away from the sun. Yeah, thirteen at least thirteen times the distance between Neptune and the sun. Thirteen uh, times. Yeah. So extraordinarily far away and it, it would be it would be about one about five to six earth masses um and basically if you add this in to the to the models 
these planetary models, which have been able to do a great deal for us in the past, if you add in this massive colossal planet that's so far away, you end up getting the same collection of, of ETNOs in the same orbital pattern. Uh-huh. Which and this cannot this simply cannot be replicated by our Sedna's orbit. Model. Is it is the only reason that we because Sedna's orbit's outside of Planet Nine's orbit. Like Sedna goes furthest away. Uh, yeah, furthest probably away. would be. Probably would be. Right. It's just because Sedna goes around the sun with the sun at a focal point, so Sedna gets really close, and that's when we see Sedna, right? Yeah, yeah. So Sedna would its tail would stretch out further yeah, yeah. than Planet Nine's orbit. So, so, so when Sedna goes, it's eleven thousand years as well. So, yeah, yeah. So, so the, Sedna is just close to us at the moment. So basically, mm-hmm. what you're saying is Planet Nine is at the far part of its orbit, and the reason oh, we're well. Sedna is because Sedna is at the close part of its orbit, but we haven't seen Planet Nine yet. The thing is, with all these ETNOs, because they have such long periods, we haven't actually seen them complete a full orbital cycle. Yeah, no, so we don't, we don't know. We, we can predict what Planet Nine is, a theoretical planet that would fix our calculations. We can predict what the orbit would look like. We can't tell where it is in its orbit. I mean, planetary things are very Newtonian. And if we think of um, Laplace's demon, you get enough yeah. information about all of the other things. You can piece back and rewind the clock and see exactly when Planet Nine disrupted this system the way the planetary models work is that you can't really like stick the planet in you stick the orbit in because you have to do it over such a long time scale and like i don't i don't i just don't think they've been able to pinpoint where planet nine would be basically because the orbits have formed a long long time ago like eleven thousand years is nothing to that kind of that mm. kind of it's not like it's not like sedna's on an irregular orbit that's following planet nine around it's been shifted into this orbit because that's that's the way planet nine has pushed it or something and it's just it's stable in this orbit. It, like it may, it may no longer be interacting with Planet Nine. This, this it might just be in this orbit because in the past it has interacted. Which, which means that if it's no longer interacting, if all these orbits are now stable, yeah, we we, we yeah we can basically we we, we oh. can predict where the orbit of Planet Nine must be. But we we just don't yeah. have enough information to know where. And it let's will be real. Be. If and we're if going we're... if we're going to look for Planet Nine with like a spacecraft, let's say its orbit's so oh. huge that you need to know mm-hmm. pretty 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 specifically where it's going to be oh yeah exactly I mean, we, we are not even thinking about looking after it with a, looking for it with a spacecraft at the moment so so far we're just looking for it with sky surveys now that we have a pretty solid mathematical theory behind how big planet line would have to be where its orbit would have to be what its mass would have to be now we have to find it and basically this will be really really difficult because well it's because it's so far away it would probably be about 600 times less the brightness of pluto and even Pluto is like is really hard to find because it's even with the, some of the you know a, a good telescope that you have, you probably won't be able to see it. And the problem with that is because most of the ETNOs haven't completed a full cycle, that means that we can't tell exactly where Planet Nine would be either. So we don't know how bright it would have to be. If it's in its further stage of the orbit, only the best telescopes would be able to see it. If right. it's at the close stage of its orbit, like the the close elliptical bit, we may already have pictures of it that may have just been identified as stars because the thing is it's moving so slowly that we would have to take a, a weird amount of pictures of a thing that could just be a star for us to even notice it moving because that's mm-hmm. how you find planets you just see a moving star uh-huh. and and like for us to notice it moving we'd have to you know <laughs> we need a lot of data basically and we, we may already have pictures of it we may need to use a subaru telescope to like scan as much of the sky we basically looked at a quarter of the possible locations it could be in. 
um, and they're using citizen science to like scan through, you know, pictures of uh, of stars and see if they can find anything moving or any problems with that. But I mean, it could genuinely just still be there, and we haven't found it because we haven't looked. Yeah. And like, if we look in all the available places and it's not there, then maybe we have a problem. Generally, if you about fifty percent of astronomers these days will probably tell you it's likely, and the other fifty percent will tell you it's less, it's not likely, and that's just wishful thinking. But it's one of those things where it's it's we're either going to find it or we're not you know it's taken very seriously and, and accepted pretty well in the last 10 years is is got a guy called constantine batigan and is, and brown they've pushed this hard and until i watched the interview with constantine like a 90 minute interview i mean i i just want it to be true so badly he's such a cool guy he's such a scientist what's he say he's just like a he's like a young you know like a young dude dyed red hair loves astronomy to the bones like he's just an absolute genius and like he he's thought i don't know he kind of built this theory himself a lot in terms of like getting it publishing the papers and making it being taken seriously and he's like he says there's he thinks there's a 99.6 percent chance that it exists just based on the fact that there really isn't a lot that can explain a lot of these discrepancies. It's one of those results where, like, you know, in physics, it's like yeah. half of five sigma results tend to be tend to be wrong. Yeah. People tend to, people say stuff like that. Like, it, it's it's one of those situations where the models so strongly imply it that for it not to be there, we would just have to have a slightly wrong model. And like the the, the competing theories that are explaining the the sednoid ETNOs are stuff like primordial black holes or like just really even more way 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 more absurd things than the fact that it's just another planet and like it's totally possible that this planet could be there like either either it was like sort of catapulted way out there from neptune early in the formation of the solar system like it could be the thing is we don't actually know it's like size all we know is its mass because its mass is the only thing that that determines how it affects the other orbit so it could be tiny and yeah, yeah, it's five to ten Earth masses, which means it could be a tiny, tiny, dense planet or a massive gas giant, but because it's really not very dense. But um, the five to ten Earth mass thing is nice, actually, because they didn't know it was going to be there. Like they went out and they predicted it was going to be five, five to five to ten or five to six Earth masses, and five to six Earth masses is the most common planet size we have found in the galaxy, and we don't have any of those in the solar system it goes straight from one to 15 earth masses in our solar system which makes it a bit of an anomaly if you stick a five to six earth mass planet in there you know that that's if you had to if it had to have predicted a mass five to six earth masses is really convenient for this theory right and like it could have you could have plugged in the numbers and it could have said oh it's 150 earth masses and you go okay it probably isn't a planet but the fact that you plugged in the numbers and it just happened to be the most common planet size in the galaxy like doesn't you know, it doesn't say a lot, but it does say a lot. You know? well, the unfortunate thing with this is this is data that unfortunately you can't prove really. Well, like, like there's the, with with the Higgs, we can work and work and work and work and work, and with LIGO, we could work and work and work and produce a but, really. But great both of those found thing. both of those found. You know, we found black hole waves and gravitational waves. We found yeah, yeah, this. yeah. But I'm saying we'll like, find this. Yeah. I think we will. I I'm calling it. Next five years, you're going to see a headline, Ninth Planet. And we're all going to think it's great, but we're all going to be disappointed because you know we're going to send a probe there. We can't get artist impressions of a lovely Planet Nine sunset because it's just a big black blob. Like, we don't even know anything about it. 
And we will never, we'll never know anything about it. Not until space travel is advanced beyond the point of sanity will we ever know anything about Planet Nine, uh-huh. which is annoying. Which is annoying. All we'll ever know is that it's there. If we, if we do, that's the, that's the problem. So, but it's still exciting, isn't it? Spicy food, Sam. What causes spicy food to be spicy? Capsaicin. Capsaicin. How much do you know about capsaicin? Right. <sighs> okay. I know that it's the spices. I know that it was originally made by plants so that animals wouldn't eat it because it tastes hot. And I, I think it stimulates, like... So I know that there's, like, a series of receptors in your mouth which detect different levels and different extremes of heat. And the capsaicin, I think, triggers the one that detects high temperatures of heat. So when you're, so that means that like when you eat spicy food, the sensation isn't the same as being burnt because when you're being burnt, you have like the the quite hot and the very hot and the extremely hot receptors all being activated. And capsaicin will just target the extremely hot receptor because of its chemical composition just by chance. So you feel like you're you're hot in a slightly different way. Interestingly, like it, also, it also triggers abrasion receptors in your tongue as well. Abrasion receptors? Yeah. Anyway, well, I, I'm not doing anything to do with your tongue. I'm here Ooh, to talk okay. about solar panels. Oh, my. What the? Oh, geez, oh if you, my if you God. dope the surface of a solar panel it, with it. capsaicin, it significantly improves the efficiency of the solar panel. Because, what? furthermore... Okay, solar panels are made from semiconductors, um, and a semiconductor, Sam, is called a semiconductor because it's made of a material that kind of conducts stuff but kind of doesn't. Um, And it can do that one of two ways. It can either have one less electron or one more electron than it really needs in its system. So often you'll get like a crystalline structure, which is, it's it's doped. And that means that it's, it's got a standard crystalline structure up until one atom, which is non-standard. So you can have a crystal of carbon and then it'll have one boron in it and the boron's got uh, less electrons. So you have a hole where it's slightly positive in that area. And then you can put in a different thing, I don't know, different molecule, tin or whatever, I don't know. And it's got extra electrons at that point. So it fits into the lattice and at different points in the lattice, you've got one more or one less electron. I mean, yeah. interestingly, capsaicin changes the type of doping that you have because you have P and N types of semiconductors. A P type is positive type. Mm-hmm. N type is negative type. So when you cover it in capsaicin, it changes the type and increases the number of charge carriers that you have, which increases the number of photons that can be absorbed from the sun, which increases the efficiency per unit area. Oh, wow. And, and the great so, thing about well, it is it's so, it's so readily available. Just hot sauce. My next question is, are they doing that? Like, are we, are we putting capsaicin on our solar panels? Oh no, yeah. It's, it's specifically perovskite solar panels. So if I was to lick my solar panel, it would be spicy? I suppose. Don't do that. You'd also probably get poisoning from indium in the fucking solar panel. Oh, uh, that's kind of a good point. It would also be quite hot, I imagine. Yeah, because it's sitting in the sun all day. Uh, so you wouldn't taste the, the spiciness because you'd be burning your actual mouth. But, you know, that's still very cool. I know capsaicin is a colossal molecule. 
it's a exactly, chain. I, mean, I think it's probably like 10, 11, 12 carbons long. It's got an It's got a few alkyl. It. It's got an alkyl on it. It's got a nitrogen amine group on the end. It's like a yeah. fast. Fast. It's particularly chemically active, like surprisingly so. There's quite a lot of papers talking about it being really good OH donor, really good something donor, really good that donates electrons here, donates electrons there. It's a it's a, it's a fun molecule. This is the good bit of science when you have something where it's 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 linked to everything else. I wish I could give you more, but honestly, uh-huh. the number of words I'm looking at right now. <laughs> As a general fan of capsaicin, this is it can save the planet as well. You know, that's that's really selling it. Spicy solar panels, they are more efficient. Significantly more efficient. Facts like these, they honestly make me think that we're just making things wrong. Like, we, we surely we could have made our solar panels so that they just were better. Like, what, what if, if putting capsaicin on it makes them that much better, we can't be designing them very well. Well, here's the thing. Like, How many things have we not discovered yet? <laughs> And maybe just putting jellyfishes in cars makes them faster or more efficient. <laughs> like, what if we just put a couple fish in the exhaust manifold? Like, would that would that just eat to try it out? Suddenly, it's carbon would neutral. Can eat the carbon? <laughs> Is that the all new range of cuttlefish? Cuttlefish cars. cars. Cuttlefish yeah. cars. Stick a cuttlefish in the exhaust. Sam, do you believe in time travel? Yes. Uh, okay, what kind of time travel? Forward in time, slowly. Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. P for proton, which is 2.793 mu n, and mu n equal to negative 1.93 mu n, 1836. That was a rough bit of podcasting there. <laughs> Jeez. Essentially, it's potential energy, like, like all things are. Pineapple eats you. Generate into a world of pain. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Do people say the of? Okay, okay. Uh, how are we doing this? Okay, basically. <laughs> and that's because the whole of Enceladus, the whole moon, is being squished and squashed by Saturn. I'm gonna be honest. It looks like the Death Star. Sam, have you heard of glass frogs? Oh yeah, they're great. No, you better not know this about glass frogs. Is it the thing that came out this week about why they're so secretive? Oh fuck. <laughs> No, I think, I don't know, I don't know, Henry. Do we all have a Fantasia? Do you want microtubules on? Uh, I mean, I can imagine. It's a, it's a small tubule, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, spot on, yeah. <laughs> you would have an electron field. We're not yeah. experts, let's just put it out here. Because we've been recently alerted by my mum that some of her physics professor friends may be <laughs> listening to this podcast. Um, and that... That made us feel bad. I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, Bert Henry's mind is always is always crucial for a good podcast. I think. All right, Sam. Henry. You're listening to the Substandard Model. 